What I'm about to share with you is a true story that was shared with me from one of my former pastors directly from the person uh, that this happened to a, a number of, of years ago. There's a guy named Steve, and he was uh, in some sort of Christian ministry uh, up in, in the Boston area. And a number of years ago, it's at least over 10 years ago, I'm not sure exactly how long ago, but um, it was wintertime, and he had just uh, he had left church on Sunday morning, and he was uh, beginning his drive home on the interstate, um, and it was, a, it was a very cold day. As I mentioned, it was, it was winter. And uh, the conditions were, were poor. It had been a foggy earlier that day and it turned to a bit of, of ice on the road. So the roads were, were slick and there was patchy ice along the way. And Well, as he was driving, driving along, Steve said that he, he approached a, a crest in, on the interstate where he couldn't really see what was on the other side. And he, just, he sensed that he was supposed to slow down and move over to, to the side a, a little bit toward the, toward the shoulder. So as he did, he crested the hill and he said that as, as he crested the hill, he saw what he could have only imagined before in a movie. He saw brake lights that were swinging back and forth, and he saw cars crashing into one another and a huge pileup at the bottom of the hill where there was, there was a turn. Steve said that he was able to, to get off to the side and on the shoulder, and he, he kind of wedged his car behind a, uh, one of the, the pylons on a, on a bridge there, and uh, he, he got out, and he said he just stood there for a moment, and he watched as car after car came over the, the crest and slammed on the brakes and, um, and ran into the cars at the, the bottom of the hill. And he said, and after a moment, he, he said, I did the only thing that I knew to do. He said, I, I ran. He said he ran up the side in the grass, up the hill, up toward the crest, and he said, I he ran out into the middle of the oncoming traffic and he put his hands up and he started to wave and scream and pointing in the middle of the road trying to get cars to, to, to move off so that they would not, they would not go over the crest and, and, and be in the accident. And he said as he did, it was kind of like everything was in slow motion where he said he could, he could see people looking at him, some people honking, some people, you know, waving at him. But he said that as it happened, he said it was, it was horrific because he could see people coming and he knew what was on the other side and he was, he was trying to get, he was trying to warn them and all he could hear behind him was the, the screeching and the crashing and it just the honk, the horns and he said it was, it was terrifying. And he said eventually, he said the police arrived and they got the, the situation under, under control and he said that he, he realized that when he got, he got out of the car, he said he didn't think about it at the moment like this, but he realized that he knew the truth about what was on the other side of the hill. And that everybody who was coming to that crest, nobody else knew what they were about to see. And he knew that because he knew what was there, he had the responsibility to go and to tell them and to warn them so that they might, they might live. The parable that we are about to hear together this morning is intended to serve the exact same purpose. It is a warning from Jesus that He lays before our hearts that is intended to sober us. 
This final section of Luke chapter 16 is intended to cause us to stop, to listen. Because Jesus is going to serve our souls by giving us a glimpse from what is on the other side. He is going to show us what is on the other side of of eternity. That after this life, we will all pass into another world that none of us know what is there, but there is one who has come from heaven to warn us. And that we are to hear this word and to receive it and to respond while there is still time. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham from far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, well, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This text is it's, it's unique in, in the sense that it's, it's not a tip, typical parable. It's actually never called a parable by by Jesus. It's often categorized that way. I'd like for us to think of it this morning as what you might call a prophetic parable, meaning that this is a real scene with, with real people, a real situation with real lessons that we are intended to receive. Though it's told in, in parable form, I think we should receive this as, as a real event that happens in keeping with many of the other things we'll see in Scripture, as you'll see. As we go through this text this morning, we have one big idea that kind of hangs over the entire thing, and it's this. 
how we respond to God's Word in this life has an eternal impact in the life to come. How we respond to God's Word in this life has an eternal impact in the life to come. The way we'll consider this is, is just as the text unfolds, we're going to see there's, there's two men. They have two very different destinies. And then we'll conclude with four reflections on what we learn from watching their story. First, let's consider these two men. Look again at verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So we get the summary here of of the lives of, of two men. One is an unnamed rich man, and the other is a poor man named Lazarus. Let's notice a few things about the rich man first. First, notice what he wore. He was clothed in purple. Now to us that may not mean much, but people in that day would know that, that the way you get purple garments, that whoever has them, that, that's reserved for royalty. It's reserved for uh, kings, for high priests, or for people who were extremely wealthy. And what made purple so, such an expensive uh, sort of color to have for your, uh, your wardrobe was the way you got it. In order to get purple, you had to get these, these small little shell, shellfish called a murex. And they only came in different times of the season, and you, would, you had to crush them, and out came this purple, a few purple drops. So as you can imagine, in order to get enough purple, just how meticulous and laborious that kind of process was to be able to soak enough uh, dye in these, these, this cloth. It was very, very expensive. Lydia, in Acts chapter 16, was a seller of purple. So she was probably wealthy and maybe even sold to someone like this. He also here has linen, you'll notice. This was also very costly. It's about the same, actually more per ounce than gold in these days. It was a soft, delicate material that was under your robe. It's basically real expensive underwear. That's what he wore. Then notice what he ate. It says here he feasted sumptuously every day. Uh, The the word there for feasted sumptuously is euphrano, where we get the word euphoria. It's a mood of joy. This man's dinner table was always rocking. He's feasting, he's laughing, the bubbly's always flowing. There's There's always a second course if you want some. Every day was a celebration in his house. Never gave even a thought to where his next meal would come from. His problem was he didn't have enough fridges to store it all. Also notice where he lived. It says there that Lazarus was laid at his gate. The word for gate is used to to speak about the entrances of cities or temples or the palaces of the rich and the elite. This man's home was some sort of gated house that had to keep out the intruders because he got more money, more problems. You're always going to have somebody coming to try and take your stuff. 
One of the things that's important to notice about this man, and we're going to see this more as we get into the rest of the text, but there's, there's no mention of God. There's no discussion about thankfulness and how this man was so aware that everything he had was sheer mercy. He probably feels as if he has no need. He's got a beautiful home. He's got the best wines in his cellar. He's got the best suits in his closets. All his chariots have tricked out rims. This man lacks nothing in his prosperity. Socially, certainly this man would have been popular. He would have been attractive to everybody. He would have been envied by everyone. But not everybody experienced life with this sort of great prosperity. Next, we meet a man in great poverty. There's a poor man here named Lazarus. It's interesting, the name Lazarus is a shorter version of the the name Eliezer, which means God is my help. This man is named God is my help. It's going to picture his life, which is one that is dependent upon God, that he sought help from God. It may even give us a clue into this man's family that he comes from a, a believing household. I think to help catch the contrast, we should look also at what he wore. Notice his clothes. What's it say there about his clothes? It doesn't, but it does tell you what he's covered in. He's covered in sores. His wardrobe was not some dapper, stylish thing like this rich man. He didn't have expensive underwear like this guy. Rather, he is covered in suffering. He has dripping sores. We don't know how he contracted this disease, but certainly uncomfortable, certainly unsightly, certainly unclean, and certainly undesirable to be around. Also notice what he ate. He desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. He didn't have cupboards full of food. He couldn't just order Uber Eats and go fetch him some Outback when he wanted it. Life didn't work like that for him. He was a beggar. He would have been content, it says here, with crumbs from the rich man's table. Just give me your scraps, sir. Desired to be fed. The word there is, it's, it, it means a strong desire, a yearning. Now, this is where it's really important to pause for a moment because most of us in this room, certainly not all of us, but most of us in this room have no idea what that means. This is not to shame any of us, but most of us in this room, certainly not all of us, but many of us in this room have never known what it means to be hungry. I'm not talking about it's almost dinner time kind of hungry. I'm talking about you haven't eaten a couple days hungry. You literally have no idea how you're going to get food. And if you have a family, how are you going to get food for people you love? Again, this is not to shame you, but it's to alert you to the fact that there are people who don't experience life the same way that you do. See, this rich man didn't have categories for this. This weren't his people. He didn't hang out with people like that. He didn't know people like that. He had never been in that sort of situation before, likely. This man yearns. All he wants is the rich man's leftover. I mean, he's going to throw it out anyway. Can't you just throw it at me? You notice here the 
the irony. Even the dogs. The touch of a dog would make you unclean. But these dogs have more compassion on Lazarus as they come to lick his sores than this rich man who just walks by and won't even give him the time of day. And then did you notice where he lived? It says that he was laid at the gate of the rich man. He was laid at the gate. It's a passive verb, which means that he had to have been placed there. He was placed there by his, his family or his friends or his caretaker, which implies that he's disabled. It implies that he's been injured somehow, or he maybe has a natural handicap that hindered him from, from even being able to get to this place of opportunity. He had to get somebody to help him get there. What do you think life was like for that poor man? Some of you know exactly what it was like. Some of you have been in this situation. Some of you are in this situation right now. What do you think it was like to be him? The continual sense of shame. I mean, you know how some of you, you spill coffee on your shirt and you go to work and you're like, oh, it's, uh, it's part of the design. You know, like, you're just, you, you feel shame by getting coffee on your shirt. People walk by this man, they'd walk on the opposite side of the street. Try not to make direct eye contact. If you've got children, you're going to make sure you shuffle them on the other side of you. This poor man needed everything because he was empty in his poverty. And he was placed, he was placed on the outside of the door of a rich man who needed nothing because he was full in his prosperity. The rich man was able to help him. But he was not only able to help him, but he was commanded by God's law to help him. See, the Old Testament was filled with commands about how people who had were to treat those who did not have within the community of Israel. Deuteronomy 15.7, If one of your brothers should become poor, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your brother. Open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Exodus 22.25 says, Do not exact interest from the poor. If somebody's in need, don't charge them a bunch of interest and take advantage of their opportunity. Take advantage of their disopportunity. Leviticus 19 and 23 tells us, told Israel that in, in their days of harvesting, both in the vineyard and also in, 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 the, in the barley, whenever they're uh, cleaning out the fields, you don't pick up the scraps and you, you don't go back through and do a second round. You leave the edges and you leave some of the stuff that's on the, the vines so that the poor can come behind and have some. You see, God had blessed His people and He expected that if they were some of the ones that He blessed financially, that they would be His hands and feet to bless those who were in a time of need. This is what it meant, nuts and bolts, to love your neighbor. 
to love them, to love according to the law. Again, the Old Testament law told this rich man dozens of times to care for the poor. So if he loved God, and if he feared God, and if he believed the law, he ought to help. And you get this picture of this man whose name, Lazarus, means God is my help. (laughs) Lazarus is looking to God to be his help. And this rich man, who had been entrusted with much wealth from the Lord, should be the means by which Lazarus can get some help from the Lord. But as we're going to see, this man neglects his responsibility. The rich man did not obey God's law. It's important to point out the context of what's been going on here. Jesus has been speaking to the Pharisees who were very wealthy and were always trying to find ways around the law in order to not have to obey it. And one of the ones they really wanted to find a way around was these commands for the poor because they wanted to be able to stockpile their wealth rather than share their wealth. And I'm sure this rich man could have come up with, if there's dozens of commands as to why to do it, he could have probably come up with dozens of reasons not to do it. I mean, maybe he'd worked hard. That's got to mean something. Maybe he'd studied hard to get where he was. That's got to mean something. And it does mean something. Maybe he thinks, you know, if I help him, you know, maybe others are going to come. Maybe they're going to go tell their friends, and then they're all going to be at my gate. Or, you know what, I, I don't want to enable him. That seems like such an awful thing to do to somebody. Wouldn't want to just enable somebody in their hard situation there, and maybe they, it wouldn't motivate them to go out and get a job. You know, if I, start, if, I, if, I, if I get him once, I know he'll be back here tomorrow, and I'm going to have to help him again. You know, it might not be safe to help him. You know, Pro- probably not, not safe. I mean, he could have diseases. I mean, those sores, who knows what they are, Right? I mean, he could be mentally unstable. He might hurt me. I know what it is. Maybe he's poor because God's cursed him. I don't want to work against the Lord. So, you know. Listen, friends. You and I can justify and excuse yourself away from any command in the Bible if you want to. This rich man, just like the Pharisees, loved money. So instead of humbly yielding to the Scriptures and give generously to others, he found ways around it. You see, those who love their idols will do whatever they need to do in order to get them and keep them. You see, they were guilty of changing the Bible instead of allowing the Bible to change them. Now listen, I understand because I've been studying this text all week and I've been continually thinking of all the ways that it doesn't apply to me. Just like so many of you already. You're like, yes, yes, but. (laughs) Listen, stop that. Just listen to what he says. Let the Word do the work in you that it's supposed to do. You see, because this rich man proved that he was not a believer. 
And if he happens to be one of the Pharisees, a Pharisee, you could have plugged a Pharisee right in here. He would have had all this wealth, probably would have treated somebody the same sort of way, unless it was an opportunity for him to, you know, remember last week, blow the, the, the trumpet, look at me, I'm giving generous Instagram, here we go, good, and that's it. Like, if that's the reason you're interacting with, with those who do not have, that's, that's doubly evil. But this rich man proved that he was not a believer. He was wealthy in material goods, but he was in great poverty in regards to spiritual grace. But as we're going to see, this poor man proved that he was a believer. He was in poverty in regards to material goods, but he was rich in spiritual grace. And you would never have known that, likely, from just getting the snapshot that we got. But the Lord in His mercy sends a picture from what's on the other side. Which brings us to our second point. Two destinies. We have two men, two very different men, and now we have two destinies. Two very different destinies. Verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. What we find here on the the other side in the afterlife is a great reversal of fortunes. The man who was rich and had much is now empty while the poor man who was empty is now full. I think it's important as we come to this section of Scripture to to take our time here. This This is likely the most descriptive picture of what's on the other side and what awaits every single person in this room, or who is listening to this, or who will ever have ever lived. You see, the Bible provides vocabulary to instruct us about what awaits us there. Both, you'll notice first here that, that something happened to both these people. What's the same? They both die. Everybody dies. We were in Ecclesiastes all summer. This was one of the points of the book, is that death awaits everyone. The king and the pawn both go back in the box. But it's important to understand what death is. You see, death is not cessation, where you you cease being conscious, and that's, that's it. Death, rather, is, the Bible teaches, separation where the body and the spirit and the soul separate. The body and the spirit separate. The body is buried in a grave, goes back to dust as God promised Adam and Eve as part of the curse of sin, and the spirit departs to another realm. This other realm is known broadly as Sheol or Hades. It's the same thing. Whenever you see that word Sheol, the grave, Hades in the Old Testament, often it's talking about this place of the dead. But within Hades more broadly, within Sheol broadly, there's, there's two very different realms, one for the believer and one for the unbeliever. 
First, let's consider what happens to believers after they die. Before Jesus rose from the dead, which is when this story would have taken place, the spirit of believers, when they depart, they went to Abraham's side. We saw that there in verse 22. Lazarus was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. Abraham's bosom, your text may say. This is why oftentimes you'll see in the Old Testament, it says when somebody died, they were gathered to their fathers. This is the picture of of where they go. You see, Abraham was the father of faith. And all those who had faith in the promises of God and uh, lived uh, according to God's law by faith, following him, trusting in the sacrifices and the hope of the one who is to come, all those who died in, in faith would go and be gathered to this place. And Lazarus here is presented at being at Abraham's side. Abraham's bosom is a place where departed spirits of the righteous were until the day of Christ's resurrection. Lazarus here is pictured as a believer. God was indeed his help during his life and now will be forevermore in in eternal life. I think it's also important to notice here about Lazarus, this believer, that he is conscious. He's, He's awake. He's alert. And he's comforted. He may have been far away from the presence of the rich man in his life, but now he is close to Abraham for eternity. He is received. He is comforted. He is cared for. He is brought near. Now, after Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus, Jesus went into, into heaven, and, and there now the spirit of believers goes to him in the presence of God. This is why Jesus said to the, the, the man on the cross, uh, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. He's ushering him in now to, to heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.8 promises that absent from the body is present with the Lord. So if you're a believer, when you die, your body is laid in the ground and your spirit goes to be with the Lord. You get another picture of this in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 12, where we, we find believers who had been martyred for their faith. They had been killed because they were Christians. And if you remember, they were conscious. And they were crying out to God, and God comforted them. It's a very same picture. Now, we do not know exactly what the afterlife is like for believers between the time they die and the time Christ returns, but we do know from Revelation chapter 6 and from this text here, that their spirits are awake. They're able to speak. They're able to see. They're able to enjoy the faithful care and the comfort that is provided for them by the Lord. We know that much. And then one day soon, the Lord Jesus Christ will return and He will, be, he will come with the angels and with the spirits of those who have, have departed, who are in Christ. And He the book of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, tells us that he will raise bodies from the grave, reunite them with our spirits, glorify our bodies, so that believers will be able to endure and enjoy his glory forevermore. And we shall always be with the Lord, the Scriptures say. The scriptures also say, encourage one another with those words. That's encouraging. But that's not everyone's destiny. The Lord will also raise unbelievers and in some sense fix their bodies to be able to endure the wrath of God forevermore. 
and how we respond to God's Word and the one that it points to, God's Son, Jesus, in this life determines which end will be ours in the life to come. This is the warning. You see, unbelievers have a very different experience upon death. Verse 23 says that the rich man in Hades being in torment. So he too is in the place of the dead, but there's, as we've seen already, there's a, there's a chasm that separates the two, the place for the righteous and the place for the unbelieving. Now what we're about to talk about here is some of the weightiest realities that we can consider. It's terrifying. I do not speak of these things lightly. These things are true. And I think it's important for us to note here that the most graphic picture in the Bible of hell is given to us by Jesus because He created it. And He came to warn us and to die to rescue us from it so that no one might have to go there including you and including me. Hades is the place of the dead where the departed spirits of the unbelieving go until the final day of judgment. You might think of it as a waiting room for the final hell. We see Hades mentioned later in the book of Revelation chapter 20 which says this in verse 11. This is John with a glimpse at the end of days, the final judgment. He sees this. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. And from His presence, earth and sky fled away and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, the famous and the forgotten, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they have done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This rich man would, will one day stand there for that. He'll be among the great. who will be called to account for what he did with his greatness. Every word, every look, every closed fist, There's a distinction between Hades and hell proper, the lake of fire. There's, there's similarities. It appears that now Hades is, is much like what the final judgment will be, though the final judgment in the lake of fire will be somehow worse. I think it's unhelpful to try to imagine what it would be like because whatever gruesome picture you can come up with it would, it would not do hell justice. Just as heaven will be infinitely better than we could ever imagine, 
so hell will be infinitely worse than one could ever imagine. But there are things that we know about this place. First, we know it is not a place of happiness. You see, before I was a Christian, I used to joke about hell. Hell was funny to me. You know, I I thought that it would be the place where all my buddies and I would go and do our our keg stands for eternity, is the way I thought about hell, that it would just be one big party. The days when people laugh in the face of God will end. There will be no laughter in hell. It's also not a place of rest. This is why it's actually not true when someone lays an unbeliever to rest and says that they're in a better place. That is not true. Verse 23 says, being in torment. Verse 24, I am in anguish in this flame. There is no rest there. This, by the way, refutes the false teaching held by Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists that, that have a doctrine called soul sleep that suggests when you die that somehow your, your, your soul goes to sleep similar to what your body appears to be doing and that you're in a, a comatose spiritual state until the day of judgment. But as we see here, the rich man is, he wishes he was asleep, but he is not. There is no rest there. Hell isn't a, a state of mind. It's a real place where real awareness is happening and there is no rest. Jesus warns so soberly in Mark nine forty eight of the worm that does not die and the fire that is not quenched. It's also important to know that, that hell is, is not a place that is ruled by Satan. In hell, Satan will not be running around with a, with a, a pitchfork in some red jumpsuit like Farside cartoons portray him. Jesus instructs us in Matthew 25, which Mark read a few moments ago, that Jesus will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You see, hell was created for Satan and all the rebellious angels. It's a place of eternal conscious torment for Satan, his demonic angels, and all those who willingly choose to follow the rebellion against God and His law and His Son. This is going to sound strange to you, but Satan does not rule hell. God rules hell. There's a, it's a very it's a strange picture. There's two texts I'm going to read for us that seem to give differing pictures of God's work in hell. I'll show you how they complement rather than contradict. Listen to this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. There is eternal destruction away from the Lord and the presence of His might. And then at the same time, Revelation chapter 14, verse 9 
If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Away from the presence of the Lord in the presence of the Lamb. What does that mean? How could they both be true? What it means very simply is this. They are away from the presence of the Lord in the sense of His, in this life, believer or non-believer, you have known God's kindness. Your heart beats right now by kindness. You breathe air, which is sheer mercy. Rain falls on the righteous and the wicked. There is food for the righteous and the wicked. There is a benevolence that God shows people, even those who hate him, in this life. But there's a very real sense in which that benevolence of God will cease and they will be away from his benevolent presence. While at the same time, they will be in the presence of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, who will pour out wrath for eternity upon those who have rejected him and counted him as unworthy of their time and attention and very lives. One of the questions that's always asked here by anyone who has listened to anything that has been said is why would a good, loving God create a place like hell? And I mean this in the kindest way possible because I have asked this question and anybody who's ever thought about anything the Bible says asks this question. But it's the wrong question. I'll answer the question, but I first want to say it's the wrong question. A better question, or how about this? A better question would be how could a good God get any of us into heaven and not compromise his justice? You see, for any of us, as we are, to get into heaven, God has to stop being good. He has to begin to wink at sin and allow things to not be that big a deal. He has to overlook things. Because God is good, no evil, no injustice, from the smallest to the great, will be overlooked. Because God is good, He will judge evil, all evil. You know it's a bad judge if a bad judge just dismisses cases because he just, I'm just a loving judge. It doesn't matter. Everybody go. Everybody knows that's a wicked judge. The God of the Bible is not a wicked judge. He is a good judge. He is a just judge. He's a righteous judge. And because He's loving, He will not allow evil to go unpunished. And because he's merciful, he would send his son Jesus to come and on a cross take the judgment that sinners like me and you deserve and there pour out his wrath upon his son so that now anyone, no matter where you've been or what you've done, who will turn from their sin and believe upon Jesus, the wrath of God towards them will be satisfied. God still has wrath that will be poured upon those who do not believe. 
because they are not hidden under the righteousness of Christ. But those who find refuge in Christ, we just sang about earlier, that is our hope. It's not that we get to heaven and show God how awesome we were. Nobody gets into heaven for being a good person because there are no good people compared to God. Everybody has sinned and fall short of His glory. Everybody. But because God is good and because He's loving and because He's merciful and He delights in seeing the wicked come to life and be saved, He sent His Son to die and to rise. Which is good news, but the Pharisees hated it. See, Jesus... Jesus Himself, the incarnation of the law Himself, is right in front of them and they're sneering at Him because they love their sin more than Him. Which is the same way I was for most of my life until God in His mercy opened my eyes to see. Which does not make me smarter than anybody or more morally sensitive than anybody or better than anybody. I'm a Christian only because of mercy. It's interesting, in the rest of our text, there's, there's two things that we see that people in hell want. There's two things that people in hell desire. You'll remember that, that, that Lazarus desired something. He is now comforted and satisfied. But we're going to see here that the rich man now has desire. What is it that people desire in hell? The first thing they want is mercy. The first thing they want is mercy. Verse 24, The rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime... You received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. The rich man yearns for mercy. He desires his hell to end. Listen, this is why people who would say that hell is, is bad stuff here, no, 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 no. There, there are very hard things in this life, but it is nothing compared to this. He wants some sort of relief from his punishment. He wants, he wants mercy, and this should sober us because we live in a day where everybody cries justice. But on the last day, everybody is going to be crying for mercy. And I am not saying that justice is unimportant. But I am saying that the more you're aware of what you deserve before God Almighty, the more prone you will be to want to give mercy. Doesn't mean you ever want to overlook justice. But it does affect your posture toward fellow sinners. I think it's also important to notice here that the rich man was not repentant in hell. You see, he still sees Lazarus as below him. 
He doesn't call for Lazarus so that he can apologize and ask for forgiveness and confess his sins to him and, and ask him to forgive him for all of the many ways that he sinned against him in his life. He wants Lazarus to go fetch him some water. The rich man would not give Lazarus crumbs from his table, but now he wants, from, he wants crumbs from Lazarus' table. Justice here is served in a most sobering way. Which again, justice is good. It is glorious for God to do what is right. I wonder what it would be like for that man, that rich man. Forever haunted by all the money. Not because money was bad, but because of what he did with it and what he didn't do with it and how it owned him. It's silly. Like heaven, pavement is going to be gold. <laughs> pavement. And in hell it will be seen as such a fleeting, foolish thing to have given your very soul over. Jesus said, what is it? profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul. Haunted by all those chances and all that time and all that opportunity that was spent on himself. Again, one of the most longed for things in hell will be one more chance. This is why boredom is such a grave sin in a life where every moment matters. All this opportunity that was spent on himself and indulgence that could have been used glorifying God and helping others in need. In hell, people will long for mercy. God's justice is right and good and true and eternal. And the rich man sinned against Lazarus, but he also sinned against God who gave his law. And there will be no mercy for him. There is no such thing as purgatory. There is no such thing as a second chance. There is no reincarnation. There is no annihilation. Though Dante's Inferno is fa full of fantasy, I think the opening page captures something when he speaks about a, a sign that hangs over the door of hell that says, Abandon hope, all ye who enter this place. I've read this quote before, but I will read it again because of how appropriate it is. This is from J.C. Ryle. There is a time coming when many will repent too late and believe too late and have sorrow for sin too late and begin to pray too late. Myriads shall wake up in another world and be convinced of the truths which on earth they refuse to believe. Earth is the only place in God's creation where there is any infidelity. Hell itself is nothing but truth known too late. For this rich man who wants mercy, it is too late and it is too far. There's a great chasm that is fixed. Just as he had set up his gate to keep the man away from what he had, so God now sets up a gate a wall, a chasm to keep those who are unbelieving away from his eternal riches. The first thing people in hell will want is mercy. The second thing people in hell want is evangelism. 
Verse 27. He said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. God says, Doesn't need to send Lazarus back from the dead. Moses and the prophets give plenty of warning. People will not go to hell for lack of information lack of warning. You want to know something really interesting? In John chapter 11 and 12, there was a man who died whose name was Lazarus. And Jesus raised him from the dead after four days. Do you remember what they wanted to do to Lazarus after he came back from the dead? John chapter 12. A large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, and they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. (laughs) I don't laugh because it's funny. The irony is so strong. He wants to send a man named Lazarus back to warn all his brothers. But a man named Lazarus does come back and everybody wants to kill him. Why? Because we love our sin. We love our way. We want things the way we want them. We don't want somebody messing with our money. You see, the reason people don't believe, the reason they don't repent is not because of lack of information. It's not because they haven't been giving enough convincing miracles. It's because our hearts are set on the wrong things. We worship the wrong things. We desire the wrong things. People don't want God. They want stuff or whatever their idol may be. And this word is intended to be a merciful warning for you and for me. Because right now, right now we hear this word while there's time. We conclude with four considerations. The first is this. What you do with God's law has eternal consequences. What you do with God's law has eternal consequences. I encourage you to not spend so much time trying to figure out how this text does not apply to you. Remember that it was, it was the Pharisees who would have had this bullseye put on them with this text who changed the Bible instead of allowing the Bible to change them. This is very important to notice. Consider this. We say it often, but we can't say it enough that everything matters. How you treat people matters. How you engage with those around you matters. 
This is why God gave his law. It's very interesting. When you read through the law of God, all 613 commands, how practical it is to orient you to how you're supposed to reflect the image of God to people who are around you, to show them love and compassion and mercy and kindness and service just as God has shown you in Christ. And what we do with God's law matters very much. What doesn't matter so much is whether you're rich or poor. God's more concerned about how you you deal with with other people. Because, you see, being prosperous in and of itself does not put you at odds with God. Nor does being poor put you in God's favor. The Bible is very clear that God shows no partiality. There will be rich people in heaven and there will be poor people in hell. The rich man was not in hell because he had wealth. He was in hell because he loved his money. And because he loved money more than he loved God and more than he loved people and he twisted somehow God's word to be able to avoid the conviction and to be able to keep living as if it didn't matter which is evidenced by the way that he related to God's law and to other people. You remember the passage that Mark read a few moments ago from Matthew 25? All the very seemingly mundane things that Jesus remembers on the day of judgment about feeding and clothing and visiting and caring for, offering a cup of water. What you do with God's law has eternal consequences. Now, the first way it's supposed to help you is it's supposed to break you to make you see, I'm a sinner then, because I sure don't love people like I'm supposed to. And if you see that, praise be to God. That is step one of getting the help that, that Lazarus is named after, is recognizing that you need a Savior. And that is why Jesus came, to save people who don't love others and don't love God, but love themselves. He comes to rescue people from that. And then he comes to give his spirit to you to empower you to now be able to live in ways that bring him glory. What you do with God's law has eternal consequences. Secondly, be be warned of sin's aim for your soul. Be warned of sin's aim for your soul. The, the Pharisees had sneered at Jesus because of his warnings about wealth. But what they did not see was how sinister sin's aim was for them. Sin has one aim, to harden your heart against God. The deceitfulness of sin, it's always working to callous our heart toward hearing a text and saying, that's for me first. It's going to trick you into twisting it and assuring yourself that you're above it somehow. If you heard yourself or felt yourself trying to justify yourself as to how this doesn't really apply to you or you're probably okay in this, this is a very important point for you to consider. Third, be warned of what awaits the unbelieving. Be warned of what awaits the unbelieving. This text is no empty word. The rich man longed for someone to come back and to warn those he loved. Friends, this is God's warning to you. Through his apostles, God has given his word. It has been now proclaimed to you and to me. This is the warning. 
God is being merciful to you. You know why He's being merciful to you? Because He does not want you to perish in this way. Listen to this text that was read earlier from Ezekiel 18. Therefore, O house of Israel, I, I will judge you, each one of you according to your ways, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent, which means to turn. Turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. If you were here this morning and you're not a believer, hear those words from God Almighty. He says He does not want you to perish. Turn and believe in Jesus who died and who rose to give you life. And if you are a believer, evangelism is... The, the, the doctrine of hell is intended to provoke you to want to go and tell people who don't know Jesus about Jesus. Listen to this quote from Spurgeon. He said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Do not allow the comforts of this life and the assurance that you've got another day and you've got more time to callous your heart toward people around you who right now are on their way to this place that the rich man went to. And fourthly and finally, hope in Jesus. All of this is intended to point our hope to Jesus. He gives the most graphic picture of hell in the whole Bible here because He is filled with grace and truth. And He wants us to see. He came to rescue us from this. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for our sake He became poor so that you by His poverty might become rich. Jesus is the better rich man. He became poor to rescue those who were in poverty spiritually, indebted in sin. He gave up His riches to come near to rescue us. And then He died and then He rose from the dead to come back and to warn. He's the one who fulfilled the law and the prophets for all the ways that we didn't. His whole thing is intended to point you to Him. Jesus, the greater Lazarus, the one who is the help of any sinner who will look to him. So whether you are a believer or not a believer, the answer this morning for you is Jesus. Cast yourselves upon him and receive his mercy. Hear this word, and may it change us forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is true and that is mercifully clear. Father, we pray that you would help us to receive your word humbly, hopefully, and with real transforming power. Father, we pray that we would examine our lives in the way that we respond to your law and the way that that shows up in relationships with other people. God, we pray that we would be compassionate, sacrificial, and generous just as Jesus was toward us.
Oh God, might you help us to be a people who do not set our lives upon accumulating and securing stuff, but might you give grace to those who have to be able to help those who lack. And we pray for those who are in lack this morning, that God, they might see you as the one who is indeed their helper. They might not be filled with shame that would lead them away, but they would be honest and that we would be a church that loves and helps. But God, we pray that none of us, whether rich or poor, would find any security in anything other than Jesus and his finished work on the cross and in the empty tomb. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.